0: This is a another long chapter in the Gospel of Mark so I want to get right into it beginning at verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we have to stop there because these are probably the most controversial verses in the entire chapter. What does Jesus mean when he says that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Some people will say that this means that Jesus expected to return within the lifetime of the apostles. But that would be very hard to square with some of the other things that Jesus said. For example, in Matthew 26, 34, when he said, But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So I think it would be very odd for him to say that he does not know in one passage and that he does know in another. It, it also doesn't seem to square well with the parables that he tells in Matthew's gospel about how important it will be to be patient during the long delay. He tells parables about virgins who fall asleep and about servants who get bored and begin to ignore the master's instructions. And he tells these parables, we're told in Matthew 24, 42, because we cannot know when the Lord is coming. So elsewhere in the Gospels, it it seems that Jesus is preparing his people for a long, indeterminate delay before the second coming. And that doesn't square very well with the idea that Jesus is predicting that he will return shortly in this passage here before us. The more likely interpretation, therefore, is that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration, which happens next in the very next verse. So the context makes that the preferable option. He has just told the disciples that he can't be the king they want him to be on this side of the cross. He has to go to the cross. He has to die and rise again. He has just rebuked Peter for seeking glory by some other road than the one which runs through the valley of suffering. And the disciples are, are confused by that. They are downcast. They're disappointed. And so here we see Jesus giving them a glimpse of the kingdom of God in all its power and glory. Now, most will have to wait a real long time to see that. Most will have to die first to see that. But to some, he gives a much-needed preview. That seems to be the most reasonable understanding of what is going on here. So let's get back into the text at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Just a quick note. Anytime you're surrounded by people who are normally in heaven and they're talking, might be best if you were terrified just to say nothing at all. Just a quick note, that's for free. Verse 7 And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, as I said, this is a long chapter, so we're going to have to keep our comments brief. But you need to understand that there is a shift in Jesus' ministry after chapter 8, verse 21. From from about the midway point of chapter 8 in Mark's gospel onwards, Jesus spends a lot less time talking to the crowds and a lot more time in private instruction with the disciples. He's focused on the cross, and he is preparing his inner circle, his disciples, to lead on the other side. So the emphasis is on these sort of intense personal instruction uh, sessions that, that Jesus conducts, and this story is very representative of that theme. Now, he only takes three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. So this is an intimate experience, and it's a very intense experience. I told you off the top that Mark is proving his thesis. His thesis is that Jesus is the Son of God. In story after story, he gathers and piles up evidence, and in this story... He provides the most convincing evidence of all. Three reliable witnesses testify to the identity and significance of Jesus Christ. Moses, Elijah, and God himself. And it doesn't get any better than that, right? God himself says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So that's the, that's the smoking gun. That is irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the son of God and the savior that we need. And from this point on, the disciples are being let in on the secret of who Jesus really is, but they still can't quite get their heads around what Jesus needs to do, but that will come. All right, let's get back into the text of verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. Now, in Matthew's version of this, we're told that the disciples understood from this conversation that Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was Elijah, so to speak. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament said that a, a character like Elijah, uh, a sort of filled with the same sort of spirit as Elijah, that, that a prophet like that would come in advance of the Messiah. And the disciples are saying, you know, we, we were kind of looking for... Elijah to come first and John and Jesus is saying John is that character. He was the prophet that was sent to prepare the people of Israel to receive the Messiah. But they didn't listen to John and they did to him whatever they pleased. And that, my friends, is an example of narrative foreshadowing. If they did that to John, Jesus is saying, what do you think they will do to me? What do you think they will do to you? Verse 14 goes on to say, and when they came to the disciples, came back to the rest of the group, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some of your Bibles will add and fasting, as in this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. The majority of the ancient manuscripts actually have it that way, but some do not. And so out of an abundance of caution, it usually appears as a margin note in your Bible. Either way, this story is in Mark's gospel because of how Jesus uses it to teach a lesson to the disciples. He wants them to understand that spiritual power cannot be assumed. The disciples are not traveling healers or exorcists per se. They are conduits for the power and authority of Jesus. Therefore, for that power to flow, two things are necessary. Faith in the recipients and also the dispensers of the power and also spiritual intimacy, and devotion. Now, the father appears to have had very weak faith, and the disciples appear not to have prayed. Those things, particularly combined, will leave you ministering in the flesh, Jesus says. And that is a huge problem, particularly against stiffer spiritual opposition, which apparently the disciples are meeting here. So the bottom line is, friends, that people leak. And if you are not regularly replenishing your spiritual gas tank through prayer and fasting, you will soon find yourself ministering on fumes. That's an important lesson. All right. Verse 39, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now here we see that while Jesus has his sights set on the cross, the disciples have their eyes set on on the glory of the kingdom. They want the power and the positions that will come in the kingdom of God, but they don't see yet that the road to glory will go through the valley of humility, service, and sacrifice. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that in the kingdom of God, down is the way up. But the disciples are not ready to see that. Verse 38 So in these verses, there's a little warning here about cliquishness or clannishness. The key issue, Jesus says, is not whether they are with us, so to speak. The key issue is whether they are with Jesus. And that's a very important reminder in every day and age. Verses 42 to 50 contain some further teaching to the inner circle on the life of a disciple. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two eyes to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The main idea here is pretty straightforward. Jesus is telling the disciples they need to be extraordinarily vigilant in rooting out sin in themselves and they need to be extraordinarily careful lest they become the cause of sin in someone else. Now, Jesus is speaking in metaphor. He's This is a rhetorical device called hyperbole, right? It's exaggeration to make a point. And this is very important to recognize. I was teaching in India a number of years ago, and I met a young man very zealous for the Lord uh, who, who only had one eye. And I asked one of the, the other members of the group, I said, what happened to the brother there? And and he said, well, the brother's a new Christian, and he was working his way through the Bible, and he came across this teaching. And because he struggled with, with lust, with looking on women with lust, he actually tried to gouge out his own eye. And then thankfully, some other brothers came around and ex- explained to him how this saying was to be understood. And obviously, there's a sense in which we need to have sympathy for that, Uh, It can be hard for new Bible readers to understand, you know, the, the, the manners of speech that are common in the Bible, but there's also a sense in which it might be better to have the zeal without the understanding of the forms of speech than it would be to be simply indifferent towards sin, as I fear many in this culture and in this generation are. Whether Jesus is speaking in metaphor or not, what he's saying is absolutely clear. If you don't take drastic measures to fight sin in your life, then you have every reason to fear whether or not you're truly saved. If the Spirit of God is in you, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then there ought to be a holy hatred towards sin. And if you are comfortable, if you are making accommodations with your sin, then Jesus is saying you have every reason to expect that you will spend eternity in hell. That's a serious... Serious passage. And he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't become a stumbling block to another believer. Don't set a bad example. Don't permit others what you simply can't deny yourself. See, that's what happens. A a lot of people who have no sexual self-control, for example, will start talking about how, well, gee, maybe, you know, maybe we should be so concerned about all this. We will permit others what we can't deny ourselves. And Jesus says, oh boy, you better be real careful about that because the deepest place in hell is reserved for the one who causes little ones to stumble. Now, maybe you're offended at the mention of hell. Christians who look down their nose at hellfire preaching must face the awkward fact that Jesus talks a lot about hell in Mark's gospel, as he does in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Hell is serious business. And you need to take serious measures to ensure that your sin does not drag you down into it. That's the main thrust of the paragraph. But the last verse or two, a little bit tricky in some of the specifics. We're not actually sure what that expression means about being salted with fire. Obviously, it was an expression in use in those days. It made sense to those people. It's no longer in use today, and so we can't be sure what it means. R.T. France, a very reliable middle-of-the-road commentator, makes a guess that is as good as any I've seen. He says that in this context, that expression speaks to one who follows Jesus as totally dedicated to God's service and warns that such dedication will inevitably be costly in terms of personal suffering. That may well be it. Point's pretty clear. Following Jesus is serious business. It involves regular spiritual discipline because we leak It involves rigorous self-inspection because sin is insidious and deadly. It involves humility, sacrifice, and a long-term perspective because the road to glory leads inevitably through the valley of suffering, service, and the cross. Now, who's sufficient for these things? O Lord God, command what you will, but give what you command. Even still, come Lord Jesus. Amen. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.